Hi, welcome back to the People Data for Good podcast with me, Al Adamson. Today, I had a wonderful conversation with Kevin Campbell. He's currently at Qualtrics, uh, but he's been doing psychometric research, people, data, and analytics for more than a dozen years. Uh, He's a graduate of the Claremont uh, School of Positive Psychology. He has been at Google and Gallup and a variety of other companies that have given him a unique perspective on everything from performance and well-being uh, to employee experience to how we're going to create conditions for people to be successful at work uh, moving forward, particularly with hybrid work. Uh, He has a great personal story uh, that inspired him to get into the profession. So that is something that's certainly going to stick with me. But the whole conversation was fantastic. So hope you enjoy today's episode with Kevin Campbell. Hi, welcome back. Kevin, how are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing really well. Kevin Campbell, gosh, you, you know, you've been doing employee experience people scientists. That's how you position yourself in, in this world. You, know, you have, um, I love the way you position yourself on LinkedIn and creating high performing workplaces, but also creating environments where people can love their work. So with that staging, if you would, please introduce yourself a bit. Yeah. Um, my name is Kevin Campbell. I work as an employee experience scientist at Qualtrics and I'm a recovering consultant. Uh, so uh, uh, my background is in organizational psychology, and I actually had the pleasure of studying under the co-founder of Positive Psychology, not not Marty Seligman, um, but Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, the, the other founder of Positive Psychology. And yeah, I did a lot of work in the consulting world prior to moving into tech, where I've taken on the role of a people scientist and employee experience scientist. So I spent time uh, with the Gallup organization, working as a workplace consultant, Uh, did human capital consulting with Deloitte. Uh, And now I've worked with uh, two different employee experience vendors, CultureAmp and and now Qualtrics. Uh, And then in a previous work life, uh, and sometimes I talk about it like a past life, uh, before I I went down this route, I was um, actually a headhunter and uh, a talent scout, uh, ultimately um, ending up at at Google where I was headhunting software engineers. But I also did quite a bit of work uh, headhunting semiconductor engineers for fabulous and and non-fabulous semiconductor companies. So it's uh, it's been quite a journey. Wow, it, it has. And so you've seen the talent management, the people analytics worlds from different perspectives. And here we are in 2022. And we have obviously, you know, coming out of the pandemic, and I'm hesitant to say that because obviously it's not quote unquote out, but there is return to work or hybrid work is a norm. Uh, There's data exhaust, uh, quote unquote, that's being created. So our insights into employee uh, behaviors is heightened. And obviously there's ethical um, questions about that. But this field of people analytics has certainly grown in prominence and influence, but it's still Misunderstood. Not many people grew up being a people scientist such as yourself. So before we get into, you know, the field, 
I'd love to hear your inspiration for getting into it. Yeah, that's a it's a great question. So I think there are a couple of different inspirations or, around my timeline or or my my lifetime that um have made me interested in the space before I even knew that the space existed or what the space was and in some sense the space didn't even exist. Um so I can I can start at the earliest point, you know, I was about 10 years old. Um, when I got the call that something had happened to my mom, um, I wasn't exactly sure what went wrong, uh, or what was happening, but, um, I was able to piece things together after hearing her and other adults talked about what happened. Um, for context, you know, she was a, a single mother working 12 to 16 hours a day to support me and my three-year-old sister. And she was really good at what she did. Um, but at some point it just got to be too much and she had what we refer to now as a a nervous breakdown. And on the last day at that job, she crawled out on her hands and knees, dripping in tears and sweat from emotional, psychological and physical exhaustion. And then, uh, you know, a short time later, she fell into a, a deep depression, which led to a series of events that led to us losing our home. And, you know, from that day forward, I, I vowed to make a different life for myself. Um, and that's also what I think ultimately led me to think about creating better workplaces for people, not, not just to create stronger businesses, but also stronger families, healthier children and stronger neighborhoods. Um, and it's just really amazing to, to contrast my mom's experience with the experience that I've had working for and working with Bay Area tech companies like Google and, and all the, the, the organizations that I've, I've had the pleasure of uh, helping create a competitive advantage with and through creating better employee experiences for their people. Um, and, you know, I think the, the most sustainable way to do that uh, is to use data uh, to inform how to improve the employee, employee experience so that we can also improve business outcomes and customer outcomes, uh, because ultimately that's what's going to create the engine um, that makes it so that the world of work is improved. And I, I think a big part of it comes from from that experience very, very early on in uh, in my childhood. Well, thank you for sharing. And uh inspires me to recall uh, Jeffrey Pfeffer's book, Dying for a Paycheck. And, you know, more recently, Rob Cross talks about, you know, collaboration overload and uh, Anna Tavis and Stella Lupashor just wrote Humans at Work. And there's a lot more content and, shall we say, leading practices. Uh, and the B Corp movement, I'll, I'll put that in there, you know, and stakeholder relationship management, CSR. So there's a lot of energy around creating not only high-performing organizations, but humanizing uh, the work experience. And you are leading the charge, you know, in that uh, effort as well. So, you know, how did you know? Yes, you have this experience as a young person. Not many young people then take action to actually make the change that you have been successful at, at least to some measure over your course of your career at. Um, so what did you study in, in college and, and where did you go, if you don't mind me asking? 
Yeah, so um, I ultimately got my undergraduate degree from Excelsior College, uh, which is a small liberal arts college on the East Coast, um, even though I spent most of my, my classroom time at Pepperdine. Uh, and then my graduate studies were at the, the Claremont uh, Graduate University. Um, interestingly enough, though, I actually didn't go to college until I was well into my 20s. Um, I wanted to make as much money as quickly as possible after high school. So I went into sales and ultimately became a, uh, a subprime account executive working for, for uh, mortgage companies, uh, which was an interesting ride to, to say the least. I was making more money than I thought was humanly possible. Uh, and I was absolutely miserable. And when the financial crisis happened, it made me go back to my roots and ask myself, what do I really want to do? Um, the career that I had built for myself really didn't exist any longer. So I read every book that I could about what makes people happy, especially at work. And one of the books that I read was uh, a book by a Hungarian-born psychologist with a hard-to-pronounce name, uh, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. And uh, he wrote this book about flow. And for your listeners that may or may not be familiar with flow, it's it's what athletes call being in the zone. It's when everything just kind of clicks. It's not about, you know, being in this like relaxed, chill state, which, which some people think that means. It's it's really about being completely dialed in. You've got you've got the book back there somewhere, right? <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was hoping that I had it right there. <laughs> you know, it's it's all about being at that perfect balance of challenge and skill. So it's not doing something that's so hard that you experience anxiety or so easy that you experience boredom. It's about doing something that's incredibly hard and you're perfectly equipped to meet that challenge. And it requires so much of your mental energy that you literally lose your sense of self and your sense of time in the process. You could be so dialed into what you're doing that you could be doing it for hours and it only feels like just a few minutes have passed. Or you just, you have this breakthrough, amazing performance and you look back and you're like, I don't even remember doing that. It was just literally flowing through me. And that's, that's what flow is all about. So after reading that book, I was like, okay, I, I have to figure out what I'm going to be able to do with my career that will allow me at least to, to taste this experience just a little bit as part of my job. And I took every psychometric assessment you could possibly think of, um, everything from Myers Briggs, which has its issues, to Clifton Strength, Strengths Finder, and eventually I found this place called the Johnson O'Connor Research Foundation, uh, and went through a battery of tests over the course of a couple of days. They tested my numerical ability, my spatial ability, um, my uh, uh, ability to assess the beauty of art, and had me listen to beats and recreate beats through headphones. A lot, a lot of a full battery of tests. And at the end of it, they said I should either be a business consultant or uh, a psychologist. Now, I had never even heard of organizational psychology, uh, but I thought there must be something that combines both. And Claremont Graduate University is the only school at the time um, that had a graduate degree in not just organizational psychology, but positive organizational psychology. And it was about 45 minutes away from where I lived at the time. So I sent away for the brochure. The brochure came back and it turned out that Mihai Csikszentmihalyi was the, the person that founded that program. Uh, 
so I, you know, it's like the clouds parted and the, the, the sunshine came through and I was like, okay, this is, this is what I'm supposed to do. Yeah, that's a fantastic story. And there you go. You, you get to, to meet the guy. So how was that experience with him and the, the school? Uh, you know, it's, it's interesting um, because I, I went into uh, some aspects of the program kicking and screaming. I wanted to just talk about positive psychology all day long and positive psychology interventions. And they're like, yeah, that's great. Uh, but here's all this uh, uh, social science research methodology that you have to learn. And here's all this uh, uh, statistical analyses and data science work that you have to do. Oh, and by the way, we require all of our students to have a co-concentration in applied research and program evaluation. And I was like, I don't want to do this. This is not what I'm interested in. When, when you know, all these years later, that's a big chunk of what my work is, is, is evaluating the effectiveness of people programs using as the, the most rigorous methods available and statistics to be able to see if there's a, a true impact of that work. Um, so, yeah, it was it was probably the hardest thing I had ever done in my life up to that point. Um, and it was also changed my view of the world, not just through reading the the research and, and, and gaining that domain expertise, but also learning how to assess and understand whether something's made an impact and, and how to have a critical lens toward data and research, I think has been the most, most valuable piece of, of that. And uh, yeah, it changed me for the better. Well, I mean, it's number one, it's great school, it's great program, great alums have come out of there. So, yeah, I mean, congratulations on making that happen. And, and good for you that you had this, uh, the clouds opening, as you say. The idea that, you know, people analytics is one thing is not correct. I'll just be beyond opinionated. I'll just state my uh, what I believe to be true. Um, and there's this, uh, at least to use my language, the need for analytical diversity. In other words, there is a problem that we are trying to investigate. And there are an array of analytical techniques that we can employ to get more insight into that challenge or dynamic or, you know, whatever that might be. And that takes an education that takes practice at doing, applying different techniques to, to different problems. Uh, is that what you're doing now? Is that what you did then? Is that some of the, the bridge is like, okay, you, what analytical approach do I take? given the problem at hand and what data do I have? What data do I need to create through a survey or other means? It, was that the nature of the exercises that you were doing in that program? Absolutely. And it's interesting that you bring that up because I think that program evaluation and people analytics share this transdisciplinary nature, not just interdisciplinary Right. So interdisciplinary is different disciplines coming together to collaborate. But I think there's a something that's above and beyond either of those, any of those respective disciplines that happens in these these newer domains. Um, right. It's like 
whether you're a program evaluator or a researcher or any decision maker, there's some sort of evaluation that's being done and you use scientific methods and analytical methods in order to be able to, to determine the efficacy or the worthiness of a particular thing. Right. And, and people analytics, it's like, same thing. You have people from a data science background, a programming background, uh, domain experts from IO psychology and HR and consulting. And uh, each of us has our own lens and perspective. And each of those perspectives is deficient in some way. But when you triangulate the different perspectives, you're able to, to come to a truth that you weren't able to come to from just that independent domain. And I'm, I'm literally getting goosebumps as I think about that because I've had some really interesting methodological debates with some of my colleagues and I've walked away from those debates with, so, with, with a deeper understanding of my own field as a result of that to say like, hey, you know, this way that we've always done things in IO Psych is that the right way or are we doing that just because it's the way it's always been done? And is there a better way? And if we do continue to do it this way, how can I at least explain it to myself and others outside of my domain, not in a way to justify it, but in a way to affirm that I'm doing it because it's the right thing and not just because I want to be right. Yeah. I just, so you know, uh, I got chills too. (laughs) So it's the case that you're not alone in this, my friend. It's it is a uh, it's a beautiful thing when it works and when it happens. And you know, I love the way that you're self-reflective, not only on yourself but on our discipline, because it is at the end of the day a creative discipline. Certainly, there are constraints. You know, there are rules around you know privacy and you know ethics and. And so we have to make some conscious choices, but we have to be creative because dynamics change, circumstances change, you know, so we need to continually pressure test, you know, our our approaches. So thank you for that. Um, Before we get through your educational experience, because you mentioned you went to a liberal arts school and I was going to say, you know, did anything there prepare you for, you know, your graduate experience, graduate program experience. And then it dawned on me, uh, storytelling. And it's already evident that you're a fantastic storyteller. Uh, so it is, however, an underappreciated part of our discipline. And before I let you respond, yes, it's one thing to do an analysis, package a story, put forth a dissertation or a 60-page deck. But it's also the case that we at least in my view, need to know the story that's going to resonate with our audience first and mm. foremost, and then try and match the truth of the insights with you know, the, our, our audience. So I just wanted to get your take on that perspective, the role on storytelling, but not mm. only storytelling for storytelling's sake, but keeping in mind the audience that we're trying to address, influence, or, or, and you know, get the insight two so they can make appropriate decisions. So your thoughts on that? Yeah, so I led a workshop on this topic at a previous employer. And one of the things that we would, a model that we used is the the hero's journey. Um, (laughs) Joseph Campbell, uh, no relation, uh, was uh, a great philosopher of an historian of mythology. And he adopted this hero's journey 
template, if you will, that uh, inspired George Lucas with Star Wars and, and Pixar has, has picked it up as well. Um, and it really starts with things are at a, at a kind of an equilibrium you know, the, the Hobbit is uh, happily smoking his pipe uh, next to the Shire or whatever. And then there's some sort of disruption, some discovery is made, and then things come back to equilibrium. Um, and and it's at that discovery piece where data really makes the difference. Um, and everything else is more building up the context of of what is the aha moment that you want to have happen with that data, right? So once upon a time, there was this organization of, of uh, engineers and salespeople and customer success managers who were setting the world on fire with their new technology. And then all of a sudden, a merger happened or the, a, a rival technology came about or, uh, the you know, COVID <laughs> or, or whatever whatever happens, right? So like, I think setting up that narrative before you even get to the data is not only helpful when you're doing your readouts or you're explaining what you've collected and what the story behind that is, but it even helps inform what you go look at to begin with. Because the fact that you're even doing this kind of analysis, there's some context there. <laughs> so what's the story that got you to, to even look into these things to begin with? Oh, um, yeah. Gosh, I, I love what you're saying so much. Because uh, to your point, if you can understand those arcs, you can also find the data that represents you know, the elements, you know, how the dots are connected, in other words. But you can also be mindful of what's, absent that would actually be helpful and then the question then becomes you can you know should i go out and create it you know so you know that therein goes your expertise in survey design and you know you know analysis so yes storytelling and is that something that you do in your current role quite a bit all the time um and there's different ways that it it comes about you know one is is in doing the storytelling myself on behalf of a, of an organization that I'm, I'm working for through Qualtrics. And then another part is enabling teams to be able to do that on their own um, so that they can, can find the stories so that they're working with their stakeholders. Because a lot of times the, even the language that we use in analysis, it's, it could be very people analytics centric or just analytics centric rather than audience or people centric. So rather than saying, you know, 80 percent engagement is at 80 percent favorable why not say 80 percent of our people are bringing their extra self to work and going above and beyond in their job right so so really putting the person at the center of the way that you talk about the data can make that difference as well or to say you know we we want to make sure that our managers are better enabled Okay, well, that's a very learning and development HR lens, which is fine, but we want you, Mr. or Mrs. Manager, to show up to work confident in your ability every day, right? That that subtle shift in language um, can make a big impact in terms of the emotional resonance of, of what we're sharing. Gosh, I, I, again, yeah, what you're sh- sharing, I think, needs to be reflected on and 
really put into practice. Uh, I often share a Chinese proverb, the beginning of wisdom is calling things by their right names. Ooh. And, you know, we get caught up in our own kind of easy cliche, you know, colloquialisms, what have you. And, you know, it's, it's dangerous. You know, we need to be more specific, like you're talking about, you know, and using you know, language very thoughtfully, very intentionally. So, you know, thank you for that. So here, to back up and, and go forward, because I want to talk about, you know, employee experience and where we're going into the future and get your thoughts there. But before we do, I mean, you've had an array of extraordinary companies that you've worked with, which has led you to where you are currently. So if you would, you, you mentioned Google earlier, but you've also worked with Gallup and, you know, I won't go through the whole list right now. I'll let you, you know, talk to you know, where you've been and how that's inspired you to get to where you are now. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, it, my experience at Google was, was uh, a, another big part of why I made, or I doubled down on the transition that I made because, you know, here, here I was working at the best place to work according to all the workplace lists, especially at that time. Uh, but I still saw a high degree of variance in terms of how engaged people were with their job. Um, and you know, that made me even more curious about what is it that makes people happy at work. And I, I love that proverb because what do we even mean by happiness? What do we even mean by engagement? Right. So, so properly operationalizing the constructs that we use is so important. Um, and even knowing, well, what, what, how do you measure that? Can that be measured? Um, and one of my favorite things is, is measuring the things that people think can't be measured, um, uh, because there's, there's a lot of different techniques for that. Um, but yeah, that, that, that experience of, of, of coming to the realization that, you know, maybe it's more about fit. Uh, maybe it's more about the alignment of, of someone's natural predispositions and the work that they do and the connection between that and the overall talent strategy and business strategy of the organization rather than who, who makes it on a, on a particular list. Um, and, you know, it's interesting sometimes, you know, I, I, I've done a little bit of, of career coaching in between and I say, you know, go look at the bad glass door reviews for an organization and if the things that people are complaining about are things that you might not only put up with, but actually enjoy, that's a good sign. <laughs> right? that's, that's, that's a great piece of advice, right? Or a great suggestion. That's, uh, and I couldn't agree more. I, I remember uh, reading Good to Great, uh, this 2001, 2002, and like on page 13 or 14, Jim Collins wrote, if you're spending time trying to engage your employees, you're wasting that time. And I was like, dude, I thought we were on the same page, man. I thought this is going to be inspiring. But he went on to say the real challenge is to hire great motivated people and do your best not to piss them off. Now, of course, I'm paraphrasing. But when you talk about fit and strategy and you know, so there's a requirement under that model that you're sharing that one has to know oneself to a certain you know, degree and the organization mm -hmm. similarly has to accurately put forth not only the nature of the work, but the culture uh, of the organization. And, you know, how do you feel organizations are doing that you know, today, you know, particularly with hybrid work being, you know, increasingly the norm? 
Yeah, yeah. Laszlo Bach made the the same argument, right? Like the, the do you want to take the Yankees approach to, to hiring or do you want to take the bad news bears approach to hiring? Um uh and I'm stepping out of my wheelhouse by using sports analogies, but um <laughs> uh yeah, I, I I think you know there's there's a there's I don't think about it as being intentional about selection and being really good about making those determinations. And, and uh, it's not a black or white. I think about it as a spectrum, right? So you, you might have on one end of the spectrum a process that's completely random and biased and, and fraught with error. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have something that's completely scientific and data-driven and nobody exists on either one of those spectrums. It's just about where you stand and where you're going. Um, and one of the challenges in selection and why I choose not to do that work anymore uh, is because the pitch is usually, okay, well, give us your highest performing people. And then we're going to build a selection process that will help you identify candidates that, that best match that profile. The challenge with that is that, A, you have to have performance metrics that, that you trust, which is has its its own um, pitfalls. And B, you have, to, you have to do that on the assumption that what constitutes great performance in the future is going to be the same as what led to great performance now. Um, so for both of the re those reasons, not to mention all the, the, the legal stuff that goes into it, I, I've, I've chosen to pivot away from, from that work. Um, but I think there's a lot that goes into it from an employee experience and program effectiveness perspective, where you could still put a measuring stick up to your process and say, is our process, at least from a subjective point of view, yielding us the results that we want to see? And, and where can we move ourselves along that spectrum in order for the people going through the process to say, did it feel fair? Did it feel objective? Were we, were we taking multiple viewpoints in? Um, and then I think, you know, the what's old is new in many ways, in that a lot of the things that are happening with regard to employee experience are, are bringing the, the action loop as close to the edge of the organization as possible. Um, and I, I see this in a lot of the well-being work that we're doing at Qualtrics, where yes, we have organizational level metrics and reporting in aggregate, and we have team level reporting, but also getting down to the individual to say, what can I do as an individual to help steward my own well-being? Um, and as that relates to selection and fit, there's a, a lot of research in academia around this idea of job crafting. Adam Grant has some, some really good work on this, which is at an individual level, what can I do to reshape the tasks that I'm doing, the people that I'm interacting with, and the way that I think about my job in order to make the job that I have more in line with an I, the, the ideal job. Um, another way of saying it is that, you know, amazing careers and amazing jobs aren't found, they're made. Mm -hmm. 
right? Yeah. So it could be as simple as, you know, am I somebody who likes to work asynchronously and we're going back and forth on Slack and Teams and email? Or do I specifically set up a, a half an hour call with someone to work collaboratively over Zoom or in a conference room? Um, you know, I, I, I knew a, an engineer uh, who really broke the stereotype of the introverted engineer, very extroverted person who decided to do all of his work just outside of the, the cafeteria where the like most heavily trafficked area where people would go grab coffee just so he could have those intentional run-ins with people. And it changed the trajectory of his career. He has a podcast now and he runs the intern program and he's crafted a very different job for himself just as a result of that one change. So, um, you know, I think a lot of times we have these mental fences around what our role is, but we can break down those mental fences a lot more than than we think we can, especially if you're in a knowledge worker job. <laughs> you, you, you have the opportunity to, to change a lot of those things. But even in people that have jobs that are on the surface quite controlled, there's a lot of different things you can do with the way that you think about your work, the way that you maintain your relationships, the way that you get your work done that can um, help you find that fit and make that fit rather than just having it be through pure serendipity. Yeah, let's stay with this a bit because I want to get back to you, know, you and your experience with psychometric testing and because there are a lot out there, right? And, you know, so how do I assess uh, individual leadership traits uh, to culture fit, to engagement and well-being and all these other things? But this notion that we as individuals need to take responsibility over crafting our work, I, I think is a really important point to investigate. And because number one, I believe it to be true as well. I also believe it, particularly as the father of a 21 and 19 year old, that you know, at what point in a life slash career, you know, is that actually taught? Um, I would put forth that it's not taught uh, or at least taught very well. And so mm -hmm. you're know, taking uh, instructions and the role of the follower. Uh, Barbara Kellerman has great work on that, as you as you know. Uh, but it's also the case where we need to take a leadership role over our own work and not you know, be a victim. So we need to create, you know, our reality and create the most efficient and effective and enjoyable means in which to get work done. So, you know, with, with that in mind, my pointed question is, do you see organizations having a responsibility or an opportunity to train slash resource individuals so they can do this job crafting at scale? That's a great question. Yeah. So I, I, I don't know if they have a responsibility, but they definitely have an opportunity. Um, you know, G Gallup had some research from back in 2016 uh, that said that 90% of people, when they wanted to change their career or change their job, they had to change their organization in order to do so. And I bet if they were to look at that again uh, with the great resignation or whatever it is now, the great reshuffling and all these things, you'd see a lot of that happening. 
Um, you know, I did an analysis for one organization that was losing a lot of its underrepresented employees, and they, they were shocked because their engagement scores were actually higher than the traditionally well-represented folks. And it wasn't because they weren't leaving because they didn't like their job or they didn't like their manager. They were leaving for different careers because they wanted to go do something else. Mm. Um, and how many people do we lose because you have a salesperson that wants to go into marketing or you have a talent acquisition person that wants to go into a more traditional HR role or whatever it happens, you know, not more traditional, but, you know, an HR BP or HR generalist role. Um, so, so, you know, I think a, a large part of the, the responsibility, not responsibility, but the opportunity with organizations is to tap into um, that, that need for change and growth and crafting. Another example is um, I was working with one organization and you'll typically see this in people data and, and um, in engagement data or, or the perception of career opportunities where you'll see a um, uh, kind of a, a U shape mm -hmm. to the data mm -hmm. uh, based upon tenure where people will have this, uh, you know, this, this honeymoon effect where they're, they're really engaged or they, they believe they have all the career opportunities in the world. And then at some point that dips and then it comes back. And there's a lot of different reasons why that might be happening. You might have people that just aren't a fit and then they, they attrit. And then the only people left after 10 years of tenure are the people that, that love it. Um, or it might be that, but what we saw in this state, and, and it's a, it's different for every organization. The shape of that curve is, is different, but there's usually some sort of curve like that. And what we found in this particular data set was that after about a year or two, if the person got promoted their sense of, of career opportunities and the career opportunities available to them at that organization jumped up just like they were brand new to the company. Hmm. Um, but that wasn't really useful because you can't go around promoting everybody arbitrarily at two years just to make sure that they feel like they have great career opportunities. Uh, but we also looked at people that didn't move up, didn't change levels, didn't get a promotion, but they changed job family or they changed into a different role. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, they had that honeymoon effect just as if they were brand new and they were, they had even better scores related to their, their career outlook than people that had gotten a promotion. Wow. Uh, so, so yeah, I, I think there is an opportunity both organizationally to encourage internal mobility um, and there are more formal and less formal ways of being able to do that. And I think one of the opportunities is understanding that, it, that all initiatives and changes and things that you encourage within an organization don't always have to be formally and organizationally led, right? And I think um, there's a place for that and a necessary place and an important place, but there's also informal and team-based or individual things that can be done as well. And job crafting is a huge opportunity because it's virtually cost-free to encourage people to think about their job and think about how they get their job done in a way that allows them to break down those mental fences and, and create that, that sense of career mobility for themselves. Um, so it's a huge opportunity. Um, well, thank you for sharing that because I am so, uh, gosh, I, I don't know the right word, but I want to encourage that 
to, I mean, I want to scream it on the mountaintops because you know, the the data suggests, as you pointed out, that there is this shape curve organization. So how do you offset that? You just offered, you know, some ideas. Um, obviously, career opportunity is a key correlate or, of engagement. And where I'm landing with all this is well-being. So you have put yourself out and built your brand, not only around creating high-performing organizations, but creating an environment where people love their work. If people have more career opportunities, they feel more uh, agency, more empowered, then I would assume that you would say that they're going to be loving their work. They're going to be, you know, all these other good things that come along with it. Uh, my point of question is this, and I've had some discussions. I'm not going to call them debates, but discussions. There is a perception and that it's almost a binary trade-off between well-being and performance, where if I am super high-performing, high-contributor, and I'm working you know, 50 hours a week and you know, 60 hours a week, whatever the case is, and I'm sacrificing some things in my personal life, then my well-being goes down. Um, however, we get satisfaction in our work, you know, so your thoughts there on the relationship between well-being and performance, can both of those be high at the same time or is it, you know, a significant trade-off? What are your thoughts there? I love that question. And, you know, when it comes to these, these conversations or debates, I think one, one way of making the conversation and the debate around it more productive is to reframe the question to, to ask under what conditions are well-being and performance at odds with each other and under what conditions do they work well with each other um, so you know going back to this concept of flow um, or the the I believe it's called the Yerkes Dodson curve um, you know there's a curvilinear relationship between stress and performance such that when you're not stressed enough you you tend to underperform and when you experience too much stress you underperform but there's that sweet spot where your your the balance of challenge and capability is such that you're maximizing that performance i also think the way you measure performance is is important as well. Um, so are you talking about short-term operationally driven task-oriented performance? Or are you talking about long-term creative redefining what it means to win or to, to outperform? Um, because, you know, those are, are, are two different things, right? Like if, uh, is it a is it a marathon or is it a sprint? Mm -hmm. um, um, are you are you a bodybuilder who's uh, introducing all kinds of uh, unhealthy practices in order to get as lean as possible before competition day, or are you an athlete um, who wants to be able to? Again, I'm out of my wheelhouse using sports analogies, but are, are, are you somebody who wants to be able to continue doing this well into your, your old age, whatever old age means to you? Um, so I think, I, I think the, the operation, operationalization of performance 
makes a big difference there. How do you define performance um, and how do you define well-being? Um, you know, there's a there's a very personalized component to this. Um, you know, when we look at subjective well-being, um, as measured by Ed Diener, who's the the main academic, he was he's like the godfather of positive psychology and well-being. Um, his son Robert Biswas Diener is a is an amazing coach, runs a great program. Um, but the way that he has been measuring subjective well, he measured he's he's passed away now. But the way that he measured subjective well-being is sort of the the gold standard, in my opinion, of 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 happiness measurement or well-being. And he measures it through three components, positive affect, which means your positive moods and emotions, right? Your day-to-day experience of positive emotions, negative affect, which are your negative moods and emotions and life satisfaction, which is sort of like, Hey, relative to all the things that I want to do in life, how well am I doing? Um, and you know, these three components make up that that composite score for subjective well-being. So the classic model of what makes a happy person is high positive affect, lots of positive moods and emotions, low negative affect, not a whole lot of negative moods and emotions and high life satisfaction. But you can have any of those levels, right? So you can be very flat in terms of low negative emotions, low positive emotions, but have great life satisfaction. And my point in breaking this out into its its components is that we all have our own definition of what happiness is. And for some folks, they really over-rotate on that life satisfaction piece, uh, and they don't put as much of a premium on that day-to-day emotional component, um, or or maybe it's worth it, you know. And it changes throughout the lifespan, right? It's like you know, for some people, I want to achieve that life satisfaction, and if I have to grind it out for sixteen hours a day, seven days a week, in order to make that happen, there's going to be a cost associated with that. But some people are wired in such a way that that kind of lifestyle might actually be quite amenable to them. Um, and w- whatever yardstick we're, we're using for measuring well-being in that context might not be the same one that they would choose for themselves. Um, yeah, this- I, on the other hand, want a good balance of all, and I, I would advocate that that's the smartest way to go. <laughs> but you know, the, the, the coach in me really wants people to articulate that for themselves and, and, and find out how they define it and how they measure it. And organizationally, you also want to ask yourself, you know, what kind of, what kind of culture do we want to have? Mm-hmm. Who do we want to be? And how do we, how do we measure performance? Um, and you're well within your right as, as the leadership of that organization to, to define what that's going to be and, and, and say, what do we want it to be like around here? Yeah. And, you know, with that in mind, you know, if, if I'm listening to you right now, I'm like, yes, yes, that makes perfect sense. And then, uh, you know, particularly going back to the well-being and and performance, and I love your focus on conditions that one would exist where both can be, you know, exist in uh, conditions where one would be sacrificed or both aren't present. Uh, My question is, you know, to your point around defining and then assessing what is actually driving each. So for example, well-being, one of the key attributes of well-being is connection in one form or another. You know, I think about Sean Aker's work, the quality of happiness, number one uh, 
uh, I think it was the number one attribute in his research was the quality of someone's support system in driving someone's you know happiness. And you apply that in the workplace. It's like, you know, what's my support system at work? You know, what are my formal relationships, informal relationships, particularly with hybrid work, right? So let's say I have that in place. But when we talk about performance, oftentimes individuals are looking at performance as being scary and being somewhat being compared to others. So I am now, you know, 80% of the people get a three and there's somebody who got lower and there's somebody who got higher. And then there's this comparison um, that could ensue and this anxiety and that could compromise, you know, well-being and engagement. And I don't have to tell you that there's research that actually showed that for 20 plus years. And so why are we still mm-hmm. doing it in that way? Big, big Mm. question mark. So bring this, you know, background, you know, how would you suggest that organizations optimize for well-being? And I don't like the word performance, but we'll just use it uh, for alignment with listeners. But I prefer contribution uh, because it's more clear, but, you know, optimizing for uh, performance and well-being. What, What are your thoughts there? Well, I think the first step is to, to, to disentangle performance and contribution from performance ratings and performance rankings. Hmm. Um, because, you know, your, your actual contribution can be measured in a number of different ways. And that may or may not correlate with the way that performance gets rated or ranked or evaluated within an organization. So, you know, one of the things you want to ask yourself is what are we trying to optimize when we talk about performance? Um, and what are, what is, what are all the dimensions of performance, right? Um, a sales team is a great example, right? Are we, are we trying to optimize for percent to quota or are we trying to optimize for year over year growth? Or are we trying to optimize for customer satisfaction? Or do we want to triangulate all of those things? Um, uh, do we want to optimize for long-term um, retention of our, of our salespeople? Is that a measure of performance? So, so having a holistic view of how performance can be measured and not necessarily choosing one and making that the be-all and end-all measure, but really looking at all of the dimensions of contribution and looking at them holistically and uh, resist the urge to turn it into a formula <laughs> um, and, and, and use that as, as sort of a more of a portfolio of metrics that you look at for performance. Um, and then, you know, think about the same thing with well-being. You know, what are we trying to measure with well-being? Are we trying to measure the social support that people experience? Are we trying to measure the the degree to which people feel like they get a sense of an accomplishment from from their role? Uh, whether they feel like they're operating in that flow zone. Uh, so operationalizing what that means, and then you know, thinking about it as a as a two by two. Um, you know, where are, what, what are the differences in those folks that are in that, uh, upper right-hand corner that are performing well and have high instances of well-being, the folks that are, are low on both and the, the folks that are low on one and high on the other. And, and, uh, my guess is that what you'll find are the business outcomes 
of the folks in that upper right-hand corner are qualitatively superior to, and quantitatively superior and different to the, to each of those. Mm. Um, you know, we find the same thing in, in, in connecting customer experience with employee experience. Um, you know, if you think about what it's like to walk into a retail location that has both great customer experience scores and great employee experience scores. You have happy employees that are happy to help you. If you walk into a a retail location that has great customer experience scores and poor employee experience scores, you have a bunch of stressed out people that are looking to help you. And they're going to be the same. They're they're not going to be the same set of people next week because everybody will have turned over. You walk into a retail location with great employee experience and poor customer experience. It's like a party in there, but nobody's helping you, right? So there's there's a, a palpable difference, and ultimately there's a synergistic effect of when you have both going for you. And I think the same is true when it comes to well-being and performance. If you if you're on a team with high well-being and high performance, you're going to see that sustainable, long-term performance that not only enables you to meet your short-term goals, but sets you up for success in the long-term. If, you, if you're on a team with great well-being and poor performance, you might see people taking three-hour lunches and, and, and half, half days on Fridays. Um, <laughs> right? And if, you ha- if you're on a team with low well-being and high performance, um, you, know, you might find yourself at a big four management consulting firm. Um, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I mean, these are, I mean, you're talking about employee experience in, in essence, you know, and the, going back to your notion of conditions, organizations, specifically leaders, have a role to play in creating those conditions. Uh, they just don't happen randomly, at least, well, some do because that's just the way life works, but others can be controlled or influenced. So can you talk to about the future of employee experience and where are we going with this discipline? Yeah. uh, So two things I see happening. Um, One is employee experience moving more out of employee experience measurement and more into employee experience design. Mm. How do we create engaging employee experiences using the data and using the measurement capabilities that we have, but to inform the design of programs? Traditionally, the way the loop works is you measure what's happening, distill the findings in some way, and then go take some action in order to address those findings. Well, you could flip that and say, let's go take some action, do a really rigorous A-B test or pilot program, and then assess the findings and make adjustments to the program moving forward. So really much more of a design perspective in terms of employee experience rather than always doing things after the fact. How about we proactively try some things that we think we might want to do and then measure what's happening there? And then a lot of technology that frankly is changing the kind of work that I do um, because you know surveys and active data collection are always going to be some component probably, um, but passive data collection and an interpretation through non-structured data and text analytics and behavioral data um, 
just scratching the surface of what's possible there. Um, you know, and, and it used to be when people would collect open-ended responses or qualitative data and not be able to do something with it, you could use someone like myself to come in and say, actually, it's a problem with your survey design and survey collection. You need to structure these questions differently. But the more sophisticated technology is making it so that even a bad survey design in many instances can create really good insights. And there might not be any kind of active data collection happening, and you can still derive really rich insights on not just operational metrics, but experiential and emotional metrics as well. Um, and that's very scary and very exciting. Um, and it will definitely change the nature of, of, of my work, but ultimately I think it will be better for the employee experience, which is what I'm really here for. Well, I'll so. speak to that. You know, if I'm listening, I'm going, well, is that okay? You know, how do people feel about it? You know, ethics. I mean, we could do a whole separate talk, you know, on that, but what I want to yeah. ask you, you know, in our you know, 10 minutes or so that we have left is the value proposition for people analytics was rooted somewhat unsurprisingly to executives, to those who are commissioning the work. You know, I want to understand what's happening so I can use my scarce resources more efficiently and effectively, all that stuff. However, increasingly, the data are going to managers and in many cases to the employees themselves. So personally, if my data is being collected and it's providing me with a benefit that I understand that I trust the likes of you to do analysis that is mutually beneficial. I understand the organization is going to you know, make cultural changes, for example, that are going to help me be better recognized or what have you. But it's also going to enable me to better understand my work, maybe my network, uh, you know, maybe provide some coaching tips on you know, how I use language, for example, in the future. Uh, do you see that being a natural evolution of the space, you know, obviously with limits, uh, but you know, the, the idea of value going back down to the employee, given they're generating the data that we're talking about? 100%. And I think, I think leaning into what some people might see as a barrier around data privacy and the use of this data will, will actually help enable that in really powerful ways. Um, right? Like I'm, I'm wearing an Apple watch right now. Um, I track a lot of health data. I'm a, I subscribe to inside tracker, which is a very comprehensive blood test that, that measures 50 plus biomarkers. So all of these organizations have a lot of data on me. Um, but they're not specifically looking at Kevin Campbell. They are looking at this data in aggregate in order to feed information back to me to say, Hey, maybe you should make this change to your supplementation. Maybe you should make this change to your activity level or to your diet. And it's benefiting me. And I think if we're to really lean into that, we could create things that just by virtue of helping people get better, it'll help the organization get better. So you don't necessarily have to have that detailed level of reporting as an executive in order to be able to make positive improvements, you could just enable people to be able to make those positive improvements on their own by giving them the tools that they need. Um, and, you know, I, 
I think in many ways, um, like I, you know, I, I have uh, customers in in Europe, and I've had great experiences bringing European works councils, which are sort of the the European version of of, of unions, into the fold around a lot of these decisions early on. And not only does that help create a more collaborative relationship around the way that the data is going to be used, but most of the time they have insights that actually make those programs better. Um, so, so yeah, I, I think leaning into it and, and pushing it out to the edges of the organization and empowering individuals with that, with that information is, is great. And we should take almost a customer lens or a consumer lens. Like if we're going to do that, it's got to be a consumer grade experience. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise it's just going to be shelfware and people aren't going to use it. So how do you, how do you make it something that people want to use and, and actually use and, and use it to improve? Yeah. And it's stunning on me as you share that example with your Apple watch and it's, not just you know HR and having an employee experience director and HR you know influencing because this involves IT, it involves facilities, it involves a variety of formerly disparate functions that now need to work together more cohesively. So my pointed question as we look forward in the future, you know, who's going to be leading this? You know whether it be an individual role or a committee? Are these governing bodies already in place today in leading practice organizations? Or is the future still being discovered in terms of how employee experience is going to be managed? I don't know. It really depends. Um, You know, I think governance is a perennial discussion. And it's, it's not a one size fits all. Um, We do see chief experience officers uh, at some companies where you have a, a single a single point of contact for customer experiences, employee experiences, um, and all of these touch points. And w- what I do know is that it, it, it does have to be a shared responsibility and you do have to have an owner. So one of the things that I really push my, my customers on is if you're going to have a channel for data collection who is going to be the person or the group who's the experience owner for that, that channel. If you're going to set up a, a, a touch point, whether it be passive data, this is probably even truer for passive data collection. Who is going to be the team or the person or the department responsible for doing something with that information? And I, I think it's probably less important and I'm going to put that out there tentatively. Perhaps it's less important who is the owner. And I think it's more important that there is an owner mm-hmm. uh, and that some person or or group is identified as the, the group that's going to quarterback what gets done with the information and, and what to do next. Yeah. I- um, and then at that point, it's more of a design decision than than any kind of like right or wrong way of doing things. Yeah, no, thank you for sharing that. I, I think that is is, is spot on because uh, the search for like the ideal operating model for all this, uh, yeah, I don't think that's necessarily the right pursuit. But to your point, if it's right for your organization at that point in time, whether it be because of the uh, referent uh, 
or relationship equity that somebody has the reference power I was going for <laughs> that yeah, they yeah. have, then, then, Hey, go for it. It could be a chief of staff, it could be the head of people analytics or employee experience, just to have somebody, but you know, it's a complex undertaking as we talked about, but it needs someone to connect those dots and, uh, and hold it together. So yeah, thank you for that answer. So as we start to wrap up, um, I just want to ask you a couple uh, personal questions and they're kind of uh, off the cuff. So if you bear with me, uh, sure, so, sure, sure. Yeah, so our listeners uh, understand you a little bit more. Uh, your favorite genre of music or two? Uh, it's a it's a close tie between like bluesy, uh, folk, bluegrass, or classic classic rock, and uh, '90s gangster rap or underground hip hop. Wow, which I know <laughs> seem very, very different from from each other, but those those are the things that get me going. Yeah, <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> and we share that, by the way, just for the record. And, <laughs> and also, uh, what do you do for fun? What do you do in your your spare time for recreation? Yeah, I love to love to go hiking. I have a ten month old daughter, so I spend a lot of time with her, uh, spending time with my wife. Um, but yeah, I, I like whitewater rafting. I like hiking. I like camping. I like I like hiking in places, uh, which I've only recently started to do. Uh, I've always done like car camping with a tent at an actual campsite, but when you actually hike in uh, to a place where you don't see anybody else around. I think that's just a, a, a magical experience. And um, I've only done it a couple of times, but I, I want to start doing more of that. Yeah, oh, so, so fun. Thank you for sharing. And last question. Uh, and you mentioned earlier flow and um, she checked me high. And how did I do on the pronunciation? Although I just pretty went close. To- <laughs> pretty close. It's better than most people. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Any inspirations over the past year, uh, any books, articles, uh, what's inspired you to think differently? Yeah, Upstream. Um, and I, I, oh man, is it Chip or is it Dan Heath that wrote Upstream? I just, you know, I, I think of them as- the Chip or Dan Heath. So one of the two, they're brothers. So you're not gonna think of either of them. Um, yeah, I believe that. Yeah, it's Dan. Dan's the one that wrote Upstream. That that has been anything by by the Heath brothers. I, I just go buy it. You'll you'll you will not be disappointed um, by any of their work. What about it was uh, inspirational? Um, well, I, I love taking data and findings from the social sciences and program evaluation and applying that to the business world um, because just the the strengths in one really help complement the the weaknesses in the other uh, and um, just the idea of getting to the root of a problem um, and solving things at the the upstream source is a really really powerful thing in employee experience and customer experience um, and 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 more importantly uh, I think the the way that he talks about how to think about and react to data uh, is it data for the purposes of accountability and monitoring, or is it data for the purposes of learning? And that learning orientation toward data is what I've been trying to get across to people for a long time that he just, he really um, describes in a powerful and succinct way uh, that I think everybody, regardless of whether you're thinking about data organizationally or uh 
personally through your Apple Watch or Fitbit or whatever, whatever other wearable device, uh, you know, your lipid panel for, from your doctor, right? Like thinking about it from the perspective of not how am I chasing a score or using this to monitor something, but how am I using this as a, as a learning device to be able to make improvements is, uh, is a huge mindset shift that I think we could all benefit from. Well, yeah, thank you for that. Now it's on my reading list, so <laughs> we'll get back to you on that because, uh, yeah, that's obviously very important, not only to our profession, but uh, to, to, as you say, people. You know, how do we consume you know, data in a defensive way or in a very open-minded, uh, creative way? So, hey, Kevin, thank you for being you and your awesome self. And, yeah, as we wrap, how can people learn more about you and what you're doing? Um, reach out to me through LinkedIn. Um, pretty easy to find Kevin G. Campbell um, with a string of letters. Uh, um, uh, ACC XMP is my, my experience management certification and um, subscribe to the XM Institute. I'm an adjunct faculty with the XM Institute. Recently um, wrote a blog on uh, the ABCs of improving employee experience. I think it'd be really, really helpful for folks and keep an eye out for, for other articles uh, in the future. Will do. All right, Kevin. Well, thank you again. You be well and uh, hope to see you in person before too long. It's been a pleasure and a privilege. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening today. If you want to learn more about today's guest, go to pafal.net. You'll be able to see links to the bio as well as to the video of today's program. You'll also have the chance to support this podcast and other shows that we do by becoming a Pafal community member. You can also donate if you choose. What will be helpful to support Pafau, the People Data for Good Movement, and me will be to share this episode with friends and coworkers and others who might find it valuable. Uh, finally, for updates on upcoming episodes, shows, and events, please subscribe to our newsletter at pafal.net. At the bottom, you can also see our social media presence. So please subscribe to our company page on LinkedIn. Follow us on YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram. We're active as can be, and we want to provide this content to you that is timely, relevant, and actionable. So again, thank you for listening today and hope to see you soon. I also want to give a shout out to Jenna Dern, Malaz El-Sheikh, and Sarah Sparnan, who without them, this show would not happen. And now go out and make some great things happen.